you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LA's 89.3 and the LA's Smart App. I'm Larry Mansell. Wonderful to have you with us with critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. Charles Solomon, who's critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, and Leo Lowenstein. We begin with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It's the fifth film in the indie series. Harrison Ford is back at 80 years of age as the star. <laughs> Leo, what did you think? The good news, Larry, is that is that this film is an affectionate and mostly appropriate return to all the things that we loved about the Indiana Jones movies. Um, I was a huge fan of the original that came out in 81 and enjoyed the other to the sequels and then the fourth one that came along I believe I reviewed on this program and said it was one of the worst things I think I'd ever seen and it felt like a desecration to my memory and I was just you were hurt I was I was hurt I was angry that James Mangold the director has picked up the mantle of, of Steven Spielberg and has done a really good job sort of remembering all the things and bring, bringing back all the great action scenes and Indy is is you know even though he's in he's he's 80 he has de-aged at the beginning of the film. He's de-aged about 30 years or so. And it's quite convincing the technology. And there's been some talk about that. About that, that yeah. you know, compared to what was done in the in the Irishman, where the technology for de-aging was uh, it wasn't primitive, but it was it was not what it is now. It it and it it's it's feels very fluid and it feels um it looks pretty lifelike, you know. And they what they've done is it's it's really amazing. Uh so it it it's you know, it's it's indie looking for an object, uh, outrunning the Nazis again, um, sort of a rehash in some ways of the plot of the first one a little bit. And there's even callbacks. Mads Mikkelsen looks a lot like the villain in the first one in, in certain scenes. There's some of our favorite characters. Johnny Rice Davies is is there. Um, you know, there's there's talk of Marion, the the long lost love of of Indy and so forth. And and there's great action scenes. There's great chases. There's archaeological digs and adventures. There's, you know, some of it maybe is a little too accelerated, I suppose. But here's a point that I want to make. Um, at the time that it came out, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a huge deal. We were all enthralled. And it was, you know, this in the tradition of these cliffhangers, these action movies. And we hadn't really seen anything like it. And it was so thrilling and, you know, a huge phenomenon. Went on to spawn sequels and a ride at Disneyland. Now, as moviegoers, we expect something different. We expect a, a rapid pace. We expect lightning editing. This is all thanks to various things, MTV and, and, and Michael Bay and so forth. But, Marvel but, films, yeah. Marvel films, yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I tried to show, when I initially showed my kids when they were younger, the first indie movie, Raiders, they, they were kind of like, you know, wow, mom, it's okay, but it's a little, takes, it's a little slow. You know, and uh, and this compensates for that. It's a little it's faster. It's it's going to keep the younger audiences interested. And I think it does sort of, you know, update itself successfully. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to point out, though, is that the object that India is searching for, while it's supposed to have great sort of import in terms of mathematical history and, and so forth and time and space and all that, it doesn't have quite the weight of perhaps the Ark of the Covenant. Pretty good, though, overall. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Christy? I had a lot of fun with this, too, and it got such tepid early word out of can that I think my expectations were lowered. And when I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is super fun. This is like what you want an Indiana Jones movie to do. James Mangold, for a long time, has made very solid kind of old-fashioned studio pictures. Like, he knows how to stage a big action sequence. And uh, it feels a Spielbergian in a lot of ways with the camera angles and the lighting. There are definitely like tonal homages to, to the legacy of this franchise. But 
James Mangold did a fantastic job with like putting together a thrilling, well-paced movie here. Um, there are a couple of big chases that are just spectacular. There's a, a big chase where Indy's on a horse riding through the New York subway. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. And we got to talk about Phoebe Waller-Bridge because she's here as Indiana Jones's goddaughter. And so she's sort of stepping in as like the quick-witted, you know, smart-alecky, hard-drinking woman who can hold her own with the men. And she's great. She's so funny and she's got great timing and they have nice chemistry with each other. But there's so much consternation over her very presence here that is just like everything that's wrong with modern fandom. Like people are mad that she is here and that she's potentially emasculating Indiana Jones, which is insane. That's like, what did Marion do? She mm. talked back to him and she could outdrink guys twice her size. So it's the same thing. It's a lot of fun. Um, it is very silly toward the end. The thing that the dial does, um, I think it's meant to create a moment of tension and poignance and a moment of truth for Indiana Jones. And it ends up being inadvertently kind of silly. Like, I don't think it has the weight that it intended. And so when the final coda happens, it's meant to be very emotional. And I don't know that we can get back there. But it is great to see Indiana Jones, great to see Harrison Ford, rather, as Indiana Jones. Again, I agree with Lael that the de-aging is really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a good time. It's a good escapist summer blockbuster. It's what you want it to do. That's that's great, Christy. I, I did also really like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but I agree with you, Christy. At, towards the end of the film, it sort of almost threatened to turn into a weirdly like a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure sort of situation, which is <laughs> yep. Not what it should have been. Um, but, yeah, mostly pretty good. All right, thanks, Leo. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, James Mangold directed, and it's written by Mangold along with Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, and David Kep. Uh, the film's rated PG-13 in wide release. The animated feature, Ruby Gilman, Gilman Teenage Kraken, uh, is directed by Kirk D'Amico. Charles, what would you think? Well, to call this derivative would be kind. It's a lot of elements borrowed from the first Incredibles movie with some borrowed from Little Mermaid and some things that are just becoming almost standard for any uh, big studio animated feature these days. The setup of a family of Krakens living incognito to disguise their powers with the shy, maladroit daughter and the hyperactive son is so close to the Incredibles in the beginning, you're just going, well, I've been here. And yes, she's shy, she's maladroit, she's ill at ease. Uh, she has a crush on the one original character in the film named Connor, who's a, a black skateboarder, who I wish there were more of him because he's the most interesting figure, I think, in the film. She discovers she's really a Kraken. She has all these powers. She's a princess. She gets taken advantage of. She has to bring everybody together for the big battle. And something I'm, I'm really curious to hear um, your thoughts on, Christy, is that it seems to me this film is an example of how we shortchange girls in films in this country, that you have, okay, everybody feels left out, feels like they don't belong, feels maladroit. That's fine. But they're also saying you have to have these butt-kicking superpowers to solve the problems. And then you contrast that with some of the recent Japanese features like Suzume and Your Name and Summer Wars and Belle and even going back to Spirited Away. And these are girls who don't do anything an intelligent, determined high school girl couldn't do on their own. They don't need the superpowers. They don't need the transformations. They don't need the super weapons. They're just young, intelligent, capable women acting in emergencies. And this just seems so much weaker. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, is the animated film we're talking about from director Kirk D'Amico. Uh, Christy, what did you think? Okay, I'm going to answer Charles's question really yes, fast. Yes, good. Uh, okay, so I would say she uses her math abilities, which is a normal teenage girl thing, to solve how to get the MacGuffin-y doohickey, which is at the center <laughs> of the underwater battle. So Triton's that's a normal girl. Triton. Yes, that's a normal girl thing. Um, but I'm with you. It's super derivative. And among the movies this is going to remind everybody of is Turning Red because she is secretly mm -hmm. a Kraken and does not want the world to know that. Um, and it's also got a lot of Luca to it too, in that like 
you know, she's a monster when she goes in the water, but then is trying to look normal on dry land. So, yeah, I agree that we've seen all this done a lot better before. Maybe that won't bother little kids. And I, I think little kids are really who this is best aimed toward because it is so lively, because it is so colorful. The, the colors are very, very beautiful. Um, This is lovely to look at quite frequently. The animation isn't so great to look at, but like the the color experience, I think on the, the most primal visual aesthetic level will be fun for little kids and fine for their parents. Um, I just kept thinking about the many different kinds of movies I would have loved to have seen Jane Fonda and Tony Collette and Lana Condor and Coleman Domingo do besides this one. Um, the writing feels like that like cheeky, overactive kind of Disney Channel precociousness. Um, there's not a lot that's terribly original here in the dialogue either besides how derivative the storyline is. Um, kind of a, a step down from DreamWorks, given how good like the Kung Fu Panda movies are and how Train Your Dragon movies are. Uh, this just feels very sort of just par. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Krakens, rated PG. It's in wide release. Uh, Wham! is documentary about the musical duo of George Michael and Andrew, Andrew Ridgely. It's streaming on Netflix starting next Wednesday. Christy, you want to get us started on that? I would be delighted to because I have to admit I was totally in the bag for this movie from the get-go because I love Wham. I still love Wham. Still love George Michael. My 13th birthday, went to the Wham concert at Hollywood Park. So they are very, very important to me. <laughs> I knew I was going to like this. But having said that, I learned a lot about them. And this is a great appreciation of the two of them as a duo. I think anybody looking at Wham who just knows you know, them as a 80s pop band, um, just knows them mostly as like George Michael and the other guy, um, will learn a lot about how balanced that relationship was and how symbiotic and how much they really needed each other and how early on when they were just teenagers with these dreams of being in music, Andrew was the one who had the confidence, who had the vision for this. And George Michael never saw himself as a sex symbol he wanted to express himself but like never thought of himself as the completely gorgeous creature that he would go on to become um it's got a lot of archival footage and interviews and things that we've never seen before andrew ridgely's mom kept copious scrapbooks of everything they did and it's amazing to think back over those those four years wham was only around for like four years mm. and it's easy it's easy to dismiss their music as being empty and poppy but this is a great celebration of what a fantastic songwriter and producer george michael was even back then and then would go on to become even more so in his solo career and as andrew originally saw that that was going to be his strength like it's a nice friendship. He's fine with it, it looks like. And so I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. It's from um, Chris Smith, who has done, who did one of the fire documentaries, mm. the fire festival documentaries. So I really enjoyed it. And the songs are just so good. Just sing along by yourself at the couch at home like I did. It's fun. <laughs> and, and it sounds like their friendship endured even when Michael went solo. Is that what you're saying? It does seem like that. I mean, the okay. movie kind of just ends when Wham ends. I do wish they'd at least let us know, okay, here's what Andrew Ridgely did in the years afterward. Yeah. But yeah, George Michael became the superstar. Andrew Ridgely was happy for his mate. Wham is the documentary on Netflix. Leo, what do you think? I agree with Christy. I, I really enjoyed this film, and I did learn quite a lot about Wham. You know, it's it's true. Everyone's sort of thought of Andrew Ridgely as the the the. Brian Dunkelman to to George Michael. Brian Dunkelman was the sidekick to Ryan Seacrest on the original American Idol, and everyone forgot about him, right? It turns out, as Christy said, that Ridgely was the leader in, in the duo. He was the inspiration. He was the one who sort of brought George Michael along. Michael was very, very shy as a young uh, kid from Cyprus originally his parents from Cyprus and um, this is full of their recollections of each other of their times together it's um, it's really it's it, it could be subtitled wham in their own words um, I would have liked a little bit of context either from other people who knew them it's really just the two of them talking very little there's one moment where Elton John is reflecting you know on George Michael and what a wonderful songwriter he is but I would have liked a little context from others a few more a few more uh, points of, of communication and also I would have really liked a little bit of context just given the 
the fact that George Michael passed away, sadly, would have been nice to sort of weigh in on that. All right. Wham! is the documentary streaming on Netflix starting next Wednesday, July 5th. Chris Smith is the director, and it's rated TVMA. Coming up, we'll hear about the French drama Revoir Paris. We'll also hear about the animated adventure comedy Nimona and Everybody, a documentary that looks at three intersex individuals. That's all coming up. Our critics' reviews here on Film Week on LAist. 89.3 and the LAist app on smartphones everywhere. We'll be back in one minute. Support for LAist comes from Latino Theatre Company at the Los Angeles Theatre Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino adventures of a German-Jewish boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3 in the LAist app. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Charles Solomon, Leo Lowenstein, and Christy Lemire. Next up is the French drama Revoir Paris. Uh, the film is directed and co-written by Alice Wieneker. Leo, what did you think of Revoir Paris? This is a really, really good film by a filmmaker who I appreciate a lot. Uh, Alice Winokur did also a film called Proxima uh, about a female astronaut, and she co- and she wrote or co-wrote the film Mustang that I loved uh, from a few years ago. She's a really strong filmmaker, and she gets a really fine performance out of Virginie Efira, who won the César for Best Actress here, which is like their Academy Award. This is a story of trauma and recovery. It's uh, about a woman who is a... Uh, she's living in Paris. She's got a happy life, a partner. She's a t- Russian translator, and she goes to a cafe one day in a rainstorm to get away from the rain. And uh, she just happens to be there when a, a shooter comes in and opens fire and and takes out a number of people in the restaurant. This, of course, has happened in Paris an, a number of times, particularly after the Charlie Hebdo uh issues of of uh what 15 years ago or so it's it's super super well done and the reason being is that the filmmaker Alice Winokur keeps the camera very very closely on uh, the character, Virginie's character, as she's enduring all of the stress going through the terrorist attack. You don't know what's going on. It's very much you're unified with her point of view, her perspective. And so it's very sort of, it's broken up into sort of her own rec- recognition of what's happening and also her confusion. It's just complete confusion. And then there's a cut to after the after the incident, she has to sort of put her life back together. And it's it's a very subtle performance. You're not bludgeoned over the head at all. It's it's very much uh, sort of her coming back into her own, discovering who she is through the process of meeting some of the survivors, going back to visit the site, and sort of learning to, to make her way out of grief. I thought it was a very, very well done film and uh, very powerful. In French with English subtitles, uh, it won the César Award for the performance of Virginie Efira uh, for Best Actress. Revoir Paris uh, is unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The animated adventure Nimona is directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quain. Charles, what do you think? This is a very interesting but frustrating film because parts of it are so good and then it's got these weak spots that you just wish, well, you want to slap them and say, look how well you're doing here. Why isn't this up to this? Uh, there is some very imaginative design work. One of the problems, as we were talking about with Ruby Gilman, is that it looks like things you've seen before. This doesn't. These are new characters. 
Uh, the animation is very well matched to the designs, including it's it's not a spoiler to tell you that the title character is a shapeshifter and they keep her personality in the movement when she changes from one species to another. Not an easy thing to do and very nicely carried off. Also, the main uh, male character in it is gay, but unlike the poor, over-supported, over-understood kid in Strange World, it's just part of who he is. Nobody makes a big deal over it. It's, again, part of the adventure. Uh, it's a very complicated adventure that they're going on trying to determine treachery and, and uh, evil doing and double dealing in a sort of futuristic Middle Ages. Uh, the two real problems I had with it are, one, it's set in this enclosed city-state where people have sort of withdrawn behind the walls like the characters in uh, Attack on Titan, but you have no sense of what's beyond there that they're afraid of, yet they have all these flying devices, and you sort of think, well, wouldn't somebody at least have gone up to the wall and looked out a little bit and let you know what's out there? The other problem, as with so many other recent movies, particularly animated ones, is it just talks you to death. I mean, it's one thing to have the character say once or twice, you know, let's break things. I like to break things. By the second time, you've got that idea. By the 20th time, you want a slapper. Why is this? And it, it makes so many animated films really hard to watch now. I think it's that they don't trust their audience, and in some cases they don't trust the material. And the visuals in this film are so strong, they could carry it. I, I just wish they hadn't talked us to death because I liked so much of it. <laughs> Nimona is the film. It's streaming on Netflix. The animated adventure is rated PG. Nick Bruno and Troy Quayne are the co-directors of the film. The documentary Everybody looks at three intersex individuals. Uh, the film is directed by Julie Cohen. Christy, what do you think? It's really good, and it's really insightful and really enlightening, and it's a topic that I don't think people know a whole lot about, maybe don't feel comfortable talking about or, or learning about, but um, Julie Cohen, who's a longtime documentary filmmaker, she often works with Betsy West. She um, was nominated for an Oscar for her RBG documentary, and she's made several other films in recent years, um, looks at three people who are intersex. This is what puts the I in LGBTQIA+. This is the I, intersex sex, people who are born with some combination of X and XY chromosomes and maybe have one or both kinds of genitalia. And um, for many, many years, doctors, parents didn't know how to deal with this and would often force a gender or another gender onto a person that was not the right fit. Um, we learn from this film about the work of this one very, very prominent doctor named John Money, who would you know was at the forefront of some awful stuff involving surgeries involving putting kids in different labels that aren't the right fit and doing experiments on them and was considered an expert and went on all kinds of talk shows talking about his research here but what we learned from these, these three people saifa river and alicia who all are intersex in different ways um they're finding other people who are like them or have a similar experience and how empowering that is and trying to achieve understanding and how hard it is to date or hard it is to apply for a job or be taken seriously and not be joked about or treated as a freak in some way. Um, Julie Cohen really smartly in the beginning shows a montage of gender reveal parties, which get more and more outrageous. People blowing things up or like shooting at targets and pink or blue smoke comes out. It's it's crazy. And just how like stridently binary so much of our society tends to be. And here is a big segment of the population, like 2% of the population, quite possibly, who is intersex. And 2%? So I, think it's, 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 I didn't realize that. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but it's a... Uh, Maybe it's, I don't want to get that wrong, but there's a lot of people. I've seen that number two percent somewhere. Yeah. But it's uh, it's just it's. I think it's important to have the conversation and important for understanding. And at a time when like transgender treatment is in the conversation, as far as laws, as far as access to medical care, this is an important element of that conversation as well. Sounds really fascinating, and just the kind of thing as you're saying, Christy, that. We really haven't had a lot of coverage of this, at least that I'm aware of. And so this sounds like a good opportunity to really learn more. 
Very enlightening, indeed, yes. That's and great. all the three of the folks in this have all become activists for this cause and have found their voice, and that's been empowering for all of them as well. All right. Three intersex individuals are profiled in every body. Julie Cohen is the director of the film. It's rated R in select theaters. Also this week, In the Company of Rose, a documentary uh, that focuses on Rose Styron, the widow of the novelist William Styron, uh, James Lapine, uh, who co-wrote Into the Woods with Stephen Sondheim, is the director of this documentary, Charles. Um, this is an interesting film. Uh, Lapine met Rose Styron on um, Martha's Vineyard, where she lives and where he would go, and started just, everyone loves her. She's sort of the center of, of Martha's Vineyard society. He got to know her and just started filming her, and she at times asks him why. Um, she is a little bit of a name dropper, but she's got some really good names <laughs> to drop. expect someone who lives yes. where she does. Yes. Well, I mean, she knew the Kennedys and um, uh, Jersey Kaczynski and um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Truman Capote. Roth, Truman <laughs> Capote. Uh, so she has lots of interesting names to drop and stories to tell. You also get the feeling sometimes she is kind of papering over what was perhaps a more tumultuous marriage than she'd like to admit. But she is very charming, very warm. The rapport between her and Lapine is just tangible. She was 91 when he was filming this. They're still going. In fact, next month they're doing events together on Martha's Vineyard. Wow. She, they're talking and you know readings from the book and so forth. So. A very engaging, interesting uh, doc. I knew nothing about her. I've never read her husband's novels, uh, but I found it very engaging and quite enjoyed it. In the company of Rose, Lael. Well, Styron's most famous novel, of course, was Sophie's Choice. Uh, and that's mentioned here as well. She talks about how he came up with that idea all of a sudden that, you know, he was he, he wanted to, to share the story. And she was really, you know, not so much amused, but she she was a she was like this ever patient you know, a uh, partner to him. And what struck me about this documentary was how, what a remarkable woman Rose was in her own right, a journalist, a poet, an activist. And she put a lot of that to the side to raise her children with him and to be there with him to support him through his depression, which he, he wrote quite a lot about. And, you know, I, and yet has emerged as at 90, as you said, Charles, as this incredibly vibrant woman who. I would love to emulate, you know, getting older. She just was, was memory, her memory was sharp as a tack. She was full of stories, full of life and um, great, greatly, you know, respected and loved by, by all. And I, I thought that friendship, that love really comes through in this documentary. It's a very affectionate portrait. Sounds really sounds fun. fun. In the Company of Rose is Unrated. The documentary's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. It's also available on Amazon Prime uh, and uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Prisoner's Daughter, a drama starring Brian Cox, Kate Beckinsale, and Tyson Ritter. Catherine Hardwick is the director. Mark Bakke is the screenwriter of Prisoner's Daughter. Christy. Kate Beckinsale is a single mom struggling to make ends meet in working-class Vegas. She's got a couple different jobs. And she's got a 12-year-old son who is epileptic. So she's always struggling to make money to make sure that he's got his medication and the health care that he needs. Her father, played by Brian Cox, has been in and out of prison pretty much her entire life. And they are very estranged. And she's very resentful toward him. But he is deep in the stages of pancreatic cancer. He's being released from prison for um, compassionate care. He can go live with her. She is reluctant to take him in. She does not trust him, but she needs the money that he would bring by living there. And so it hits a lot of the redemptive beats that you would expect from this kind of formula. Um, I really wanted to like this more than I did because Kate Beckinsale and Brian Cox are such pros and they really make a lot out of some pretty thin and pretty predictable material. I'm a little confused by Brian Cox's accent here. He sounds like he's from Texas in the beginning of the movie. And then eventually he's just like straight up Logan Roy. Like, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but eventually he becomes Brian Cox again. Um, but they have a nice chemistry. The young man who plays the son is, is good in a precocious way, but it hits these kind of like 
melodramatic beats that seem at odds with the naturalism of Catherine Hardwick's style. Her early films before she did Twilight, she did 13 and Lords of Dogtown. Like she has an like a naturalistic, kind of earthy, grounded feel for the the rhythms of regular people in their everyday life. And that exists here somewhat for a while, but eventually it becomes kind of crazy and melodramatic. So I wanted to like it more than I actually did. Prisoner's Daughter, the film Lael. Well, I think Christy just articulated what I was trying to figure <laughs> out while I was watching it, which was why is there so much talent here and it sucks? Um, and, <laughs> I, um, and no, you're right. It was it, it really did sort of go for these melodramatic kind of cliched moments. And I look, I love Brian Cox. I loved him before Succession. I, I appreciate Kate Beckinsale and Catherine Hardwick, just a just a really fine director. But together, it just didn't really it just felt very... Very, very cliched, very hack, and sort of trite, sadly. Prisoner's Daughters rated R. It's in select theaters. Uh, Give Me an A, 17 short films by seven women filmmakers. Uh, Christy, can you give us like 20 seconds on this? I can. This is an anthology of shorts in response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and they all come from a different genre, whether it's horror or sci-fi or dark comedy. They're all very, very short shorts. They're extremely hit and miss. We've got a lot of talent here. Jennifer Holland, Gina Torres, Alyssa Milano, um, Jason George is in one of them. I think there's an undeniable passion and anger on display, and understandably so, but the results are extremely inconsistent. Give Me an A is available on demand and is unrated. We also want to mention it's the 55th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's been uh, given a 4K restoration and is on screen at the New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, if you haven't seen on a big screen in some time, now would seem to be the time to do it with a 4K restoration at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. You're listening to Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3 and the L.A.S. app. Jacqueline Stewart of the Motion Picture Academy coming up next on Film Week. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. LAS Studios is so happy to partner with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures to team up for a multi-season audio series examining stories of our cinematic history. Jacqueline Stewart is director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and a MacArthur Fellow, and she hosts the series. The second season is entitled Close Up on Casting, the hit role of casting in film history and we're pleased to have with us Jacqueline Stewart. Jacqueline, great to have you back with us on Film Week. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So let's talk uh, about uh, three episodes that are out to this point. The first, which is already available to listen to at LAS.com and wherever people get their podcasts, is about the casting of the Alfred Hitchcock film Rebecca, that 1940 classic. What was what was the uh, the casting battle that took place over Rebecca? Yes. Well, one of the things that we feature in our performance gallery at the museum is a set of screen tests by four actresses who were up for the role of the unnamed leading lady or secondary lady uh, for Rebecca. Vivian Lee was up for the role 
Ann Baxter, Margaret Sullivan, and Joan Fontaine, who ended up getting the role. And what we talk about there and what we expand on in the in the podcast is the way in which David O. Selznick, the producer of the film, uh, was really undecided about what direction to take. And, uh, and Alfred Hitchcock felt that Joan Fontaine was the right person for the role. Um, so they really went back and forth quite a bit in making a decision. And then mixed into that, Laurence Olivier, uh, who plays the leading man, he was uh, married <laughs> to um, Vivian Lee at the time and wanted her to have the role and was quite hostile toward Joan Fontaine as they were shooting. So thinking about these very powerful, important male figures in Hollywood history and how they could have such a strong role in determining what kinds of opportunities were available to women and, and what those experiences were like for women on set seemed like something we should really explore more deeply. That sounds fascinating. And Lee is coming off the huge success of Gone with the Wind just a year earlier, right? That's right. Yes. And if you think about, for those who haven't seen Rebecca, you should definitely see it because it's a, a beautifully shot film and it's a really haunting film about a young woman who marries a, a, a really fabulously wealthy man and goes to his estate and the marks of his previous wife, Rebecca, are everywhere. So much so that the uh, the new wife, we never even learn her name. <laughs> She's very... Um, overshadowed by the legacy of uh, of Rebecca. And one of the things that's really hard to imagine is that after playing such a headstrong character like Scarlett O'Hara, could Vivian Lee really fit the role of this meek, unnamed character? It really, you know, in retrospect to me, seems like the right move not to cast her. Um, but one can certainly understand how somebody like Laurence Olivier would have a, a different view. And actually what this opens up is the whole concept of the the lack of range that actors at the time really had during the classic Hollywood period. And uh, Joan Fontaine is Oscar nominated for Best Actress for Rebecca and then comes back the very next year in Hitchcock's Suspicion with Cary Grant and wins Best Actress for her performance in Suspicion. So her being cast in Rebecca, huge for her career. Absolutely. It really feels like a stepping stone toward that Oscar win. It's a similarly meek kind of character. Um, and as an inexperienced actress at the time, you know, she's the younger sister of Olivia de Havilland um, and really had to try to find her footing in Hollywood. And she did that very quickly through being cast as Rebecca. Pardon me. Yeah, <laughs> cast yeah. in Rebecca. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Fontaine, who lived at the age of 96, I think it was, uh, and then uh, her, her uh, sister, Olivia de Havilland, who we lost just recently, uh, centenarian uh, and also much-honored actor. We're talking with the chief artistic and programming officer for the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures here in Los Angeles, Jacqueline Stewart. She oversees the museum curatorial, education, public engagement, the film programming publications, and she is the host of the LAist original series, the Academy Museum Podcast. She's talking with us about the second season, which focuses on casting and the emergence of casting. And, and we should talk, Jacqueline, before we move on to the story of Noble Johnson from the second episode of the season. What, what is it that propels the casting director to such prominence? in Hollywood? Well, this is one of the questions that we're exploring in the podcast this season. It's not just what propels the casting director to such an important role, but also um, why is it that casting directors don't get the same kind of attention um, or, or how the, the craft of casting doesn't really seem to be understood as thoroughly as some of the other areas in filmmaking? Um, it's fascinating to me because I've been a film scholar. I was you know, a student of film history before becoming a professor. And yet I don't think I ever learned about in a class or taught what casting directors do. And when you really think about it, you recognize how essential the work of a casting director is. So one reason we start the season looking at the classic Hollywood era in a film like Rebecca is because during the heyday of the Hollywood studio system, there was no job casting director. That wasn't <laughs> a profession yet. Um, 
you know, the, the producers, the studio heads would make the decisions largely based on a kind of typecasting. You're an ingenue, you're a leading man, you're a character actor, you're a comedian, and so on. Uh, and it wasn't until the breakdown of the studio system, when you get into the 1950s and 1960s, that different kinds of possibilities open up for actors so that they can show their range, um, have more agency in the types of roles that they want to take. Um, and casting director is a profession that's really attuned to spotting talent and spotting opportunities that maybe directors uh, had not thought about when they're, or even screenwriters may have thought about when they write those physical descriptions of a character. The second episode on typecasting in the studio system looks at the case of Noble Johnson, the first African-American movie star who created roles for himself, some of the earliest black-produced films made for black moviegoers. But uh, he was known by mainstream moviegoers for playing a variety of different races. Uh, uh, Let's... uh, Listen to uh, this selection of uh, Noble Johnson uh, in the second episode of the series. What a Godspeed! This is Noble Johnson in the 1930 film adaptation of Moby Dick. What does he say that I can't hear? He played Queequeg, a native Pacific Islander, opposite John Barrymore as Captain Ahab. Him say you find white whale soon now. You lying to me again, Hazen? Jim, no. In the 1932 film, The Mummy, he played a Nubian servant of the Egyptian high priest Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff. Let the deed be done. He's ordered to kill the reincarnation of the mummy's lover, played by Zita Johan. Let me go! Let me go! Don't kill me! Come on, Skipper. Make him a friendly speech. That from episode two, typecasting in the studio system, the case of Noble Johnson. We're talking about Close Up on Casting, which is season two of the podcast from LA Studios with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, host of the podcast, Jacqueline Stewart, with us. Jacqueline, we have just a minute before we break, but Noble Johnson, uh, someone with a uh, tremendous number of credits, credits in mainstream films, but started his own picture. And how was he able to raise the financing to do his own films? Yeah, he was co-founder of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. And a lot of these early Black film companies would sell shares. Um, They were speaking directly to Black audiences at the time who wanted to see better representations on screen. And it took these independent filmmakers to do it. So they would gather the resources, go to some of the more affluent members of the black community, but then regular people would invest their money because they were so invested in seeing better images. And that's what Noble Johnson committed to do uh, in the films that he made in the teens. And these would be shown at theaters like The Lincoln on Central Avenue in Los Angeles. We'll continue our conversation with Jacqueline Stewart, director and president of the Museum of Motion Pictures, when we come back in just a minute. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3 and the LAist app. Joining me, Jacqueline Stewart, who's the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. Uh, She's the host of the Academy and LAist Studios podcast, which is looking at casting this season. Close Up on Casting is the title. We're talking about Noble Johnson, who in uh, the second episode of the series produced his own films aimed at black audiences, Were those productions financially successful, Jacqueline? Oh, my goodness. It was a really thriving industry. It was difficult because these were independent filmmakers. But the hunger was so strong among Black audiences to see images beyond uh, the kinds of servile or heavily stereotyped marginal Black characters in mainstream films if Black characters appeared at all. And so there were hundreds of these films that were made between the 19-teens Uh, and the late 1940s. And Noble Johnson was a real innovator. He was part of the very first wave of these filmmakers, even before D.W. Griffith made The Birth of a Nation, which is a film that inspired many of these artists and activists to try to use this 
this powerful medium in a positive way. He also was, um, he was gifted in a number of ways, working with animals, as a makeup artist. There were a lot of talents that he brought to his work. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, he grew up in Colorado Springs. His uh, his father had taught him horsemanship. Um, he actually was a neighbor of Lon Chaney's in Colorado Springs. And Lon mm. Chaney, of course, was known as the man of a thousand faces. Um, I wish we knew more about their relationship, but they came to Hollywood at around the same time. And Chaney was very well known for using makeup and a certain kind of, um, you know, physicality in his acting to transform into, say, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, and Noble Johnson, for his part, is fascinating because he played lots of different racial types in Hollywood films. As, as we, we heard in that heard. clip, yeah. Exactly. Um, he was someone who, because of the the light skin tone he had, uh, incredibly just gorgeous, his stature. He was very often cast as a, as a kind of leader, like a native chief or like, a, you know, a, 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 um, a, a kind of, you know, a protector or bodyguard, those kinds of things. And he was able to transform himself through makeup and through really agile acting. And it tells us a lot about how he was using those skills to navigate what was otherwise, you know, a very rigid racial segregation at the time. He was clearly not satisfied to be restricted to black roles. And he used the makeup and kind of character acting lane to open up more opportunities for himself. And the thing I was thinking also, Jacqueline, he's really able to project authority in, in some of those roles. And for a, a black man to depict that on screen, um, very important African-Americans. Absolutely. Yes. He was, you know, statuesque. I, I really see him as a precursor to Woody Strode mm -hmm. <laughs> in the way that he commands the screen and his um, just beautiful physicality. His his uh, his physique is quite remarkable. And um, and he and you're absolutely right to point out that uh, playing a, a black man with authority or being known to audiences at the time uh, that this was a black actor in this role, it would have been intimidating. So he was constantly navigating the politics of the filmmaking community, as well as the politics and the prejudices of film audiences. We're talking with the host of the podcast series, a close-up on casting season two of the series with Jacqueline Stewart, director of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Now, the most recent episode that's at uh, takes a look at innovators in the new Hollywood, Marion Doherty and Lynn Stallmaster. Stallmaster's credits we've seen on seemingly uh, in number of films. Share with yes. us some of the highlights of, of this uh, third episode. Yes. Well, in the third episode, this is where we start to talk about the emergence of the role of the casting director, like casting director as a profession, post-classic Hollywood studio era. And Lynn Stallmaster and Marion Doherty are the innovators of this field. They both came out of television. Uh, Stallmaster was working in L.A. here. Um, uh, Marion Doherty was working in New York, and they brought with them their vast knowledge of actors that also, you know, drew on their experiences and their attentiveness to the theater to really transform the possibilities of filmmaking. So one really important example in the career of Marion Doherty is um, uh, the casting of Lethal Weapon, the franchise we all know so yeah, well right now yeah. in all these casting stories. It's like impossible to imagine other people playing these roles once they're made. Yeah. But at the time, uh, the character played by Danny Glover was not written as a black character. And so when Marion Doherty suggests uh, strongly that Danny Glover should play this role, there was some, you know, pushback on that. But uh, look at the result. Um, a similar moment that we look at with Lynn Stallmaster's career is the casting of The Graduate. Uh, Benjamin, the character that was played so famously by Dustin Hoffman, sort of written as, um, you know, uh, a more sort of mainstream type, certainly not a Jewish type of character. Mm -hmm. um, but Lynn Stallmaster, like Marion Doherty, really read a script to think about the, the nuances of the character and were not restricted by the physical descriptions. 
And this, that was transformative for actors and for directors who could get guidance and, and out-of-the-box thinking through these professionals. Coming up, episodes will take a look at 70s films, um, one of my favorite decades of, of <laughs> movies, probably because I was coming of age in that decade, but about the boundaries of film that were broken and the important role of casting there. Also a look at casting unknowns. Um, obviously, risk involved when casting directors uh, make those suggestions and, and make those choices. That's all also detailed casting in animation, which is huge. Uh, can you imagine Aladdin without Robin Williams, for example? <laughs> right. Uh, and so many other choices, um, including an episode devoted to the casting of Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, Jacqueline, that film really um, wasn't just about the script, wasn't just about effects, but about the diversity of that cast. That's right, yes. And we talked to the casting director, Sarah Finn, who also cast a number of Marvel films and thinking about specifically, how do you cast an ensemble? I mean, it's one thing to think about how to identify individuals for roles, or even when you think about kind of romantic opposites, but when you're putting together a world of relationships between characters, that's a special nuance of casting. And so it's really exciting to think about how everything everywhere all at once, which swept to the last Oscars, um, how that cast came together through a very careful process of thinking, how can these artists work with each other? We're talking about the Academy Museum podcast, which is produced by LAS Studios with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. The second season, Close Up on Casting, hosted by our guest Jacqueline Stewart, the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures with us. Casting is the focus. And uh, Jacqueline, before we conclude, I just uh, wanted to thank you for the wonderful work here. These are stories that are just uh, very difficult to find elsewhere. Thank you for taking this on. It's it's terrific to be able to offer this at LAS.com. Thank you so much, Larry, for these kind words and for your time today. It's a joy to talk to you. We appreciate it. Jacqueline Stewart of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and uh, the podcast a Close Up on Casting. The first three episodes are out now. You can listen to them wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. For our critics on Film Week, I'm Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.